Morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church at Home for this 2nd of August, uh, 2020. I'm at Pomfrey Hill Pavilion this week. We're doing a test run on the technicals just to check how uh, things are working. And we've had uh, a small group of people in this morning to conduct a, or begin to conduct a risk assessment so we can think about how we might be able to uh, meet here. Now, just before I get going, um, it's great to be back with you. And thanks to Matt and to Johnny who preached the last few weeks while I've been on holiday. Um, grateful to them. Now, as I already mentioned, as you already know, in light of the, the government easing the lockdown restrictions and our ability of places of worship to meet and start regathering again, we've been thinking about and planning some small baby steps in the direction of meeting together again physically in some form, in a COVID secure way, in a safe way, in a way that protects our congregation, in a way that exalts Jesus, in a way that glorifies God and maintains our witness to the community. Uh, and we, we, we're trying to hold a few things together in that. We're trying to hold a desire to be faithful to the scriptures of what God calls us to do and to be as a local church, whilst fully, uh, hopefully sensitively recognizing that many of us, uh, according to the survey, are in different places uh, with differing opinions about the way forward and the speed of direction, the speed of travel uh, as lockdown unlocks. So we don't want to rush. We are praying for wisdom. Uh, the overriding goal is obviously the glory of Jesus, but we want to ensure that our entire church family remains connected and cared for and is served by everything that we do. Um, and we're trusting that this isn't going to be continue to be this way forever. Uh, we're praying that uh, this whole situation will move on swiftly as we get effective vaccines and treatments. Uh, but we do want to move ahead together in faith. So I want to take the opportunity this morning just to remind us of some of the essential scriptural foundations uh, of who we are as a church, why we exist, what our purpose is, what our mission should be. Uh, that's not to manipulate or manufacture any kind of particular response, but to encourage all of us, whether you begin to join with us in person at a physical location or whether you continue to participate online, uh, these truths are glorious, unchanging, eternal truths about who we are as the family of God, bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And they're truths that I believe will protect us and preserve us and empower us as a church family to keep going in the face of this test of faith, which I think that is what COVID-19 is. It, it's not persecution, but it is a test of our faith. Uh, and so this morning, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read what Paul says. Uh, and then we're going to dive in to hear what God says through him. So this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to meet together uh, in some way via the technological uh, provisions that you've given to us. 
Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would speak its unchanging and eternal truths into each of our hearts this morning to encourage us as to who we are as the family of God. We pray that you would speak, you would encourage, and you would glorify yourself in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you've got a Facebook account or Twitter or TikTok, uh, you've probably spent some time thinking about your profile and your bio. Uh, everybody tries to use that in a creative way to paint a picture with words of the kind of person they are. Who are they and what is their story? So I was looking at some this week. Here's a few. Maybe you can guess who they are. This guy says, actor, producer, running in movies since 1981. It's Tom Cruise. Then this one says, girl from the South Side, former first lady, wife, mother, dog lover, always the hugger in chief. And that's Michelle Obama. Perhaps you might guess this one. I once kicked a ball about, now I talk about kicking a ball about, and I'm still flogging, spot, flogging spuds, which is Gary Lineker. And then this final one, maybe you wouldn't pick this one out, pale and awkward and very, very small. My location is probably near the food. And that is actress Anna Kendrick. People often describe themselves by their job, their relationship status, their beliefs, their affiliations, their interests, their hobbies, to tell a story of who they are. And if you can do it in under 10 words, you are a genius. Now, as a local church, our profile and our bio, the, the fundamentals of our identity and our story are not defined by our geography, our logo, our mission statement, our website, the Bible translation we use, the songs that we sing, how great our kids' work is, the clothes that we wear to church, the coffee that we serve, or the style of the preaching, but by the pages of the Bible and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. A local church is defined and united by a single testimony that Paul gives us in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you recall to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. In that verse, you get seven affirmations of oneness rooted in the oneness of our triune God. So verse four, it speaks about the spirit, verse five about the son and verse six about the father. And those seven affirmations of one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God and father of us all are rooted in the oneness of the Trinity. And that statement in verse four is our profile and our bio as a church. It's the telling the story of who we are. That a local church is a gathering of different and diverse people called by God to be his holy people. That in his sovereign grace and goodness and his good pleasure, he has called and joined and united us together on the basis of the truths of his one triune nature and on his one work of salvation through Christ. We see this again if you were to turn to Romans chapter 1 verse 7 where Paul writes to all who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So whether our testimony as an individual is a sudden dramatic revelation and conversion where Jesus rescued us from the mess of the life we've made, or the 
yeah, the, the mess of the life we've made or the mess of our lives that we've made. Or you can't remember a time when you weren't a Christian, where you hadn't heard about Jesus and you had always felt like you believed in him. And every kind of testimony in between those two bookends, we must not fail to appreciate the fact that the same amazing grace of God has saved every single sinner who's ever turned and trusted in Christ, whether you're four, 40 or 400 years old. Our testimonies may be different, but we share one testimony that unites us, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one call by God, the Father of us all. And the Bible is, is rich in the variety of stories of God's calling and saving work that it records for us. So Abraham was called out of a pagan, unbelieving family in Genesis 12. His son Isaac was raised as a child of the covenant of God through dreams in Genesis 28 and Genesis 37, respectively. Samuel was a young boy when God called him, 1 Samuel 3. But Isaiah was a full-grown man when God called him in Isaiah 6. Cornelius in the New Testament was called while he was praying in Acts chapter 10. But Moses was called while he was working as a shepherd. Out of a tree in Luke, where Saul was stopped walking down a road in Acts story. If you were to turn... For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Then in verse 4, to him alone, uh, to him who alone does great wonders, his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 16, to him who has led his people through the wilderness, his steadfast love endures forever. In 23 and 25, it says, it is he who remembered us in our lowest state. His steadfast love endures forever. And it's he who has rescued us from our foes. His steadfast love endures forever. And it is he who gives food and provision. Receiving the steadfast, redeeming love of their God that will go on forever and ever. That's the story of the, the shared story of the Old Testament people of God. And it is also the shared story in our lives and in our church today. So let me encourage you cast your mind back and think of a time uh, think of that time when God called you where and when were you when God the Holy Spirit came and convicted you of your sin and your need of a savior and he opened your eyes to and your mind and your heart to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ where he regenerated your heart and gave you faith to trust Jesus who was freely offered to you in the gospel of grace you see, the Holy Spirit works uh, and his work is displayed to individual people in individual circumstances. So whether you were young or, or whether it's after decades of rebellious wandering, whether you come to faith alone, quietly on your own, in your own home or in a crowd during a busy public worship service, whether you resisted the gospel the first thousand times that you heard it or you responded with the very first hearing, all our stories are different. But God, through his Holy Spirit, has called each of us into his one body, his one people, by one spirit. And we've all been saved the same way. We all have looked to Jesus with that Holy Spirit-enabled love and trusted him with that Holy Spirit-empowered faith. So our testimonies may vary, but our fundamental story, our profile, our, our bio is identical and it unites us. We were dead people whom God has graciously called to himself and made us alive through Christ. 
look back again at Ephesians and Ephesians chapter two now instead of Ephesians chapter four, where we see Paul outline for us the previous condition that each of us were in. This is what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul tells us here that our previous condition was that we were dead, we were enslaved to sin, and we were condemned by the righteous wrath of God. And whether our sins were terrorism or just simply terrorizing our younger siblings, we've all shook our fist at God and set off down the road to hell. Most of us probably like to forget our foolish rebellion and our sins of our past. It, we, we would say, Look, move on, there's nothing to see here. We polish our meager accomplishments. We seek to avoid our past failures. We minimize our sin with lighthearted banter or try and excuse or rationalize it away. But Ephesians 2 loudly testifies to the truth of who we all once were. Think about this. Paul intended for this letter to be read in the public gathering of the church. He intended it to be read, verses 1 to 3, to be read out publicly in the church because God's people can understand and admit the terrible truth about our guilty past. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, desperately needing the cleansing salvation of Jesus. Now, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 can work in two ways. If we're tempted towards pride, if we, if we secretly, secretly believe that we're we weren't too bad or we're not as wicked as the person next to us, then verses one to three shatters carefully that, that, that carefully photoshopped Instagram filtered self-image that we project. But if we're tempted to despair, if we read those words and we despair, if we secretly believe that we can't possibly belong to God's people because of our past sin, then verses one to three offers us encouragement. There's nothing about your sin that isn't true of everybody else in the room and everybody else watching on this camera. The local church is a gathering of sinners saved by grace and that should mutually humble us through the knowledge that you and me and everyone else has a past that in God's eyes was very, very bad. But Ephesians 2 gloriously doesn't stop there with our guilty past. Having had that portion of the of truth read in the public gathering Paul allows us to stare at our wickedness and our rebellion but then he continues in verses four to six but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses has made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and he's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. In his great mercy, God has called each and every one of us to himself. And he has united us to his son and he has made the dead alive together with Christ. So Paul would summarize then in, in chapter four, verse four, we have one Lord and it's through one faith evidenced by one baptism. That's our testimony. 
In Christ, we've been justified. Our sins have been forgiven for Christ's sake, and we have been accepted because we have been clothed in his righteousness. At the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty due our sins, suffering God's wrath in our place so that we could be saved. At the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin over us, freeing us from being powerless subjects to sin and Satan, unable to withstand our own sinful desires and resist the world's temptations. But now, gloriously, by grace through faith, we've been freed from sin's condemnation, set free from the punishment we deserved, set free from the enslaving mastery of sin, and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, bought into God's family. So Paul would summarize again in verse four of chapter four. We have one father, the God of us all, who's in all of us, over all of us, working through all of us. So now the reality is our past selves have been crucified with Christ. Our present lives are hidden with Christ. The life that we live, we live by faith in the son of God who loved us and died for us. Galatians 2.20, and we're beloved sons and daughters of God, all with all of the privileges of being God's children. So in Ephesians 4 verses 4 to 6, Paul would say that the new Christian life that we have is, is because God the Father has called us, because Jesus, God the Son, has saved us, and because God the Holy Spirit has filled us so that we might walk in fellowship with the triune God together as one body as we expectantly wait for an eternity with him in his precious and glorious presence, as we look for that one hope together. This is our one testimony, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us. And in fact, if you were to go on in Ephesians chapter two, verses four to six of chapter four, just a summary of that, of the truth of that second part of the chapter in verses 11 to 22, where we've been reconciled one to another in the same way. The gospel not only removes that vertical dividing wall between us and God, but it's removed that horizontal dividing wall between people so that we're reconciled to God and to one another in one body, Jesus's body. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that Jesus has killed both, he's killed hostility and preached peace. He's dealt vertically and horizontally with us. So in verse 15, he's, uh, he's created one new man. In verse 16, he's reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross. And in verse 18, we both, we all have access to the Father through one spirit you know people join together for all sorts of reasons often it's it can be adversity or significant shared experience that brings people together so maybe you're still in touch with an antenatal group that you uh, had a baby with maybe uh, war veterans get together and reminisce and tell war stories cancer survivors come together people join together through significant shared experience so if solidarity is true of people who share temporary and earthly experiences, how much more should it be true of those with whom we share the most important story of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ? The local church is a people called and united by one triune God together 
people who were once dead and enslaved and condemned, but now are alive and free and reconciled to him and to one another, a people whose lives are in, inseparably linked, sharing one testimony of grace that nothing, not even death, can change. Jesus has us in the grip of his grace. He has gathered us to himself and he will never let us go, ever. And he will bring us into his glory with him. And we who share a story now will continue to have a shared story in all of eternity. That's the hope, the one hope that we have, that one day we shall be together with the one who has called us, joining our voices and ascribing to the lamb who was slain honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 5. And that together with one single thunderous voice, we will tell the story of Revelation 7 verse 10, where it says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this morning, perhaps you sit at home and you are maybe more than ever acutely aware of the separation and the displacement of our church family because of this pandemic. Perhaps you over the weeks have felt more and more distant and isolated from others because of the coronavirus. Maybe it's just that you are struggling because you feel you you arrived late to the party because you got saved later in life. Or maybe you feel like you're on the fringes and you don't really know how to get more involved in church life and church family because of the strange season that we live in. Maybe you're sad because you perceive that your testimony is is kind of dull and boring because it doesn't have that razzmatazz of sex, drugs, and rock and roll that you were saved out of. Maybe it's the thought that, am I going to miss out? Is there going to be a them and us as some people return to meeting physically together? All of those are concerns that we're probably carrying in some way to differing degrees. But the overriding truth that God wants us to hear this morning is this. God has called each and every one of us. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And our testimony resounds together for all eternity, as Paul will say in Ephesians 1 verse 6. And it will be to the praise of his glorious grace. So often... uh, In normal times, at most times, the the church can look weak and vulnerable in the eyes of the world. Perhaps right now, especially in because of the effects of the coronavirus and the separation that we experienced due to the pandemic. And because in the wider Christian world, deconstructing your faith and wandering away from the church is considered this kind of new road to spiritual enlightenment and maturity and, and credibility. The local church can look weak it can look vulnerable it can even look unsightly because we're more aware of its blemishes and its failings especially if we view it with worldly or earthly eyes and we can begin to think that being part of it isn't quite as glorious a privilege as the bible tells it is you know we are as grace church an unlikely collection of young people and old people male and female single and married unemployed retired and overworked we're not much to look at some of us aren't anyway we sing slightly off key we can't always articulate ourselves clearly we make mistakes we sin against one another and we are sinned against we are remarkably unremarkable and utterly ordinary despite our diverse personalities political views and parenting styles 
we're a little bit like the Old Testament tabernacle. If you were to get a time machine and go back in time and rock up to see the Israelites camped around the tabernacle, what you would see from the outside was a meager looking tent that was covered in ram skins and goat's hair. But if you went inside, there was unimaginable beauty and glory, the finest gold and silver that you could find, the finest jewels. And the Bible tells us that the church has more beauty and more value than we can see with our physical eyes. We might not look much from the outside and there's still a whole lot of ways in which we need to be perfected. But Jesus himself tells us it's beautiful on the inside and the church is much more than it seems. We are his radiant bride. We are the spiritual house made of living stones being built together. We're the household of God, the very pillar and buttress of truth. We're the very body of Christ himself. And Paul reminds us of our profile and our bio. This is not something that we just write cleverly over our social media accounts, but it's over our entire lives. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray.